Hey there, and welcome to a super spooky short rounds edition of War Starts at Midnight. <clears throat> uh, I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. It's All Hallows Eve, Midnight Warriors, so we decided to give you a special treat. We've got a review of my personal war crime, John Carpenter's 1982 carnage-crammed creature feature, The Thing. And since this is a short rounds episode, we won't have a special feature segment, but we'll still wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But now, let's dive right into our review of The Thing. I know I'm human. And if you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're going to find out who's who. All right, Doc, Gary, and Clark, move over there away from the others. For those who may be unfamiliar with the podcast, every so often we like to own up to our cinematic sins by discussing a seminal film from the past that one of us has somehow overlooked. These reviews are shamefully dubbed our war crimes. Today, in honor of Halloween, and in spite of Jake's apparent oversight of John Carpenter's immaculate triptych of films starring Kurt Russell in the early to mid-80s, we're discussing The Thing, because Jake's never seen it, and I think that's a gosh darn travesty. This paranoia-inducing sci-fi thriller hit theaters in the summer of 82 on a wave of slightly bad luck. Released on the heels of Spielberg's family-friendly alien arrival flick, E.T., and opening the same day as Ridley Scott's dystopic neo-noir Blade Runner, The Thing struggled to find its audience in the theater. Critics of the day weren't particularly keen on the picture either. Roger Ebert opened his review declaring it a great barfback movie that was ultimately disappointing, and Pauline Kael called it a film of limited imagination and unlimited horror effects. The Thing's fate was not sealed in 1982, however. Perhaps because its release in the early 80s coincided with the rise of cable television, a premium channel known as the home box office, and the eventual proliferation of home video. All of which would make this radar gore fest easily accessible to a whole new demographic, young, impressionable youths. 36 years later, Carpenter's evolving creature feature continues to live on as a seminal staple in the incredibly disgusting and satisfying body horror subgenre. So Jake, I'm curious. What did you think of the thing? Are you ready to join the cult of Carpenter? Or was Kale right? Is it nothing more than a showcase for Rob Bodden's masterful makeup and superb special effects? And furthermore, do you have a flamethrower I can borrow? Because I'm going to need it to complete my costume tonight. Uh, are, are you? Because I don't remember David S. Pumpkins having a flamethrower in his costume. Oh, Jake, you're so naive. This is a you know fanfic crossover costume. So it is David S. Pumpkins McCready Esquire. Any questions? It, yes, several. <laughs> okay, we, we can focus on that later. Right now, the thing. What did you think of it? Uh, so first thing, I, you asked, was I ready to join the cult of Carpenter? Uh, I actually, I'm a, I'm a John Carpenter fan, but mostly just from my experience with him and Kurt Russell, because I really loved then how did, Escape from New York. How did you miss this? I, I know. 
maybe because it's more in the horror genre and that's not something I've, you know, fully explored, maybe to the extent of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it just didn't have the reputation around it, at least when I was a kid. I, I knew I knew now that it's a cult classic, but yeah. Um, just growing up, I was never told like, oh, you really need to watch the thing. You're really going to, you're really going to like the thing. Um, to the point where I didn't even really know Kurt Russell was in it until I, uh, went to rent, rent the movie. Really? And I was really excited, uh, when I saw that. The funny part earlier that day, I was on Reddit and I saw a gif of, uh, Kurt Russell, uh, at the beginning of the movie when he walks out of his, his little room and he puts the glasses on and takes a swig of his, uh. I don't, I don't know what kind of alcohol he has there. Jane B. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, that looks like some prime Kurt Russell. I really want to watch this movie. <laughs> Not 12 hours later. I see it. At, I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted to watch. That's fantastic. I love that those those Jane B bottles that he's swinging on the whole time, like by the end, they become Molotov cocktails. Um, if yes, you notice, he's got which, he's got his little pack around his waist and he's got like a couple of them with like cloth sticking out of them. We should just play the spoilers theme song right now. That's actually a really good idea. So uh, because this is a you know classic or a cult classic film and it's been around for a while, we're just going to go ahead and declare spoilers. If you haven't seen this film, go and watch it right now. Go and watch it tonight. Halloween. It's a be a great Halloween pick. And then come back to us. Or if you don't care, uh, you can uh, just stay with us. Okay, so at the end, Childs comes back to the camp, and him and McGreedy are sitting there talking, right? Right. At the very end of the film. So we watched it, and uh, I watched it with my girlfriend, and she was like, oh, I think... You know, we started going over our theories of who was uh, the thing mm-hmm. at the end, if either of them were the thing. And the first thing I Googled, um, because I was like, there's no way McCready was the thing. The first thing I Googled is he made all those Molotov cocktails and then Child sits down and takes a big old swig out of one of the bottles, doesn't do anything. And McCready laughs because he knows that he just drank gasoline. Huh. I, I'd never made that's that's an interesting observation. Uh, and, is, but is and it, the thing about it was, I didn't even notice he made Molotov cocktails, but you obviously did. Yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't notice that when it went by. Are, are we sure that it was a Molotov cocktail bottle, though? Because I mean, being being McCready drinking as much as we see he does, it wouldn't surprise me if he also had a fresh bottle on hand as well. Uh, also, in the commentaries, nobody ever says that or addresses it or confirms it. Mm. And from what I can tell, because I, I was just doing some research, watching some fan videos and stuff, there's a really good one that goes into a lot of detail on this uh, on this film. But the cast and crew have never revealed who was the thing at what point in time. There's no canonical timeline for this movie. I, I think that's that's perfect for this movie though because the thing the thing that i think works so so well is the fact that at any time it could be anyone it has it has no definitive form until it pops out of the creature that it's currently living in be it human or otherwise it um you know they they have no obvious they don't know exactly how it's transmitted or any of that so that you know as um 
as a horror film and as a thriller film, I find that really effective because the whole time you're just, you're second guessing everything. And it makes the stakes really high to where, you know, when McCready kills, I forget the character's name, but he shoots him in the head uh, just before they're doing the blood test. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that he was human. It's sort of a, that's a great moment of the audience has to reconcile that he, he murdered a guy, but he murdered a guy in his own defense because it's sort of this you you've got two things going on you've got this alien creature that is uh trying to you know just evolve and and take over every living thing and then you've got the mania that has been brought on by its existence and so you've got a crew that's turning on themselves yes and l- and let's talk about Kurt Russell's performance here he he did a great job especially in in the scene you're talking about where he had, he had just shot uh, the the kennel keeper, whatever his name was, in the head, mm-hmm. and uh, they go, oh, he's well, we know he's human, and uh, Keith David said, well, that makes you a murderer, mm-hmm. and Kurt Kurt Russell really doesn't care that much. He yeah. he does, but he doesn't, and he's he plays that line perfectly, and and you can give credit to John Carpenter here too. Uh, between you can tell he's human, but doing the things that you know you have to do in a horror movie. He's maybe the the smartest horror movie protagonist ever. Well, he's as I far mean, as that that's the thing is he is he becomes because he's not, you know, he's just a helicopter pilot. He's not necessarily the leader of this group of of scientists on Antarctica. And I guess we should for those who haven't seen it if you're still listening through spoilers, this takes place 1982 at a US research base on Antarctica. Um and uh, so he's he's just the helicopter pilot. You know, he's transport. He gets people from A to B. That's why he's drinking all the time, because he has a lot of free time. But he also has this ability to think critically in, in situations like this. And so he just he puts it on himself to become the leader. But but when you when you go at this this uh, scenario that they're they're doing, he, he almost goes with it kind of like a Spock like approach, mm-hmm. like don't trust anybody. We got to survive. Anyone could be compromised. But at the same time, everybody else in the group could see that as being look, he just shot some guy in the head. Right. That wasn't even one of the th- he could be the thing. Yeah. And it is it is played great to where you're not even sure. And we keep finding shredded McCready clothes. So either yeah. either he is um, taken and doesn't know it or he, he's the thing and doesn't know it. He's the thing and knows it and is going to destroy everything so they can freeze or he's being set up by the thing. And the thing is way smarter than we're giving it credit for. Mm-hmm. And and those are all options straight up until the end, basically up until he gets to the point where he's like, well, we're not going to make it out of out alive, but this thing isn't either. Um, I right. love, I love that. I mean, that shows his dedication to, and, and his wisdom in like, there's no way that we can allow it to, to live. There's no way we can allow it to freeze because that's what it wants. If nothing else, the best part about this movie to me, I, I the premise was Great. I really like the premise, but I love how little answers we have about anything. Mm-hmm. I could go back and watch it right now just to, you know, test one of my theories. Yeah. And there are no answers and it works really well despite all that. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's what I was saying earlier about I like uh, I like the fact that, you know, you can't easily arrive at exact answers because that's that's what this entire movie is built upon is the unknowing. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you sent me this link, I think, uh, Friday called the suspense is better than the whore in John Carpenter's the thing. Uh, this is by Mike D'Angelo on the AV club. Describe a little bit just what this article is about. 
So it, it basically said, uh, to summarize and kind of put it into my own words, that this movie's horror aspect did not age as well as the suspense aspect. And at this point in time, seeing all the special effects from back then, uh, the, the horror derives from seeing those special effects, or mm-hmm. would have in 1982. And uh, Mike D'Angelo posits that um, those don't work now. They're kind of silly. Carpenter has uh, no uh, strong vision of those scenes like he does when it comes to the suspense side of it, yeah. which still holds up really well and will always hold up because suspense is suspense as long as people are people. And yeah. what's scary changes with time. Uh, did you agree with that, Chris? I, I thought it was a really good article. I think I think he articulates his point very well. Um, I really just have like it, it's one of those where and this is, you know, my favorite form of film criticism where I disagree, but I see see the point. I I really disagree on the horror front just because he he has a strong, particularly at the end, a strong ar- argument that the makeup just isn't that good or looks goofy or funny like it it's almost comical. I really think Rob Bodden's makeup and special effects here really hold up extremely well. Like it's one of the things that makes me go back and revisit this movie. Um, yeah. And, and part of it might be nostalgia, but we don't see stuff of that quality anymore mm-hmm. that we can tell. Well, uh, we see CG or we see mixed uh, between CG and prosthetics and whatnot, yeah. but we don't just see a, a fully somebody sat down and made some horror effects. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, when you say nostalgia, I didn't see this film until college, but it could be that, you know, I'm just, I am nostalgic for a time when there was, I mean, you know, I love Cronenberg from the eighties. I love the fly. I love Videodrome. I love the body horror genre. I love the things where it's just stuff popping out of things. And, and Bowden, you know, he's known for stuff like this. He did. He also did total recall. So think like the, uh, exploding head and, and Quaid get to the reactor core. You know, that- did, did he do the effects in, in the, in any Tim Burton films? Because that's no, he did not. I, I was reminded, especially of something you might see in like Beetlejuice or something when, um, they're using the defibrillator oh, on uh-huh. the guy and, uh, like the chest opens up and bites the doctor's arms off. Right. Yeah. No, that, uh, that was great. Okay. So, I mean, other, and other things that, that he did throughout his career, he, uh, he apparently, when he was really young, like 12 or 14, was around on the set of uh, Star Wars, kind of like almost oh. as like a, an apprentice or something. Um, but he he worked on RoboCop. He worked on Total Recall, like I said, Seven. I mean, think of like the especially the emaciated guy, like um, not a whole lot of like standout stuff, like as, as much as you have here, but still really, really good good creepy gory stuff and then also i love this he did the lizard people in fear and loathing in las vegas <laughs> that's funny um but he was here's the thing rob Bodden only 21 years old when this film was made wow so, some of the stuff i still think looks really gross yeah and like uh especially in that same scene after the guy's chest opens up and eats the doctor's arms off mm-hmm. when his head is just slowly falling off that table yeah and it's gooey and it, it lands it feels, and it turns into it a spider it feels alive like yeah it it does it it doesn't just it doesn't just have a feel of like oh i can see that you had a couple servos moving a mouth back and forth like there's so many elements to it that and and I think I didn't look too much into like the behind the scenes, so I don't know you know exactly how they pulled this stuff off. But it looks like there was probably some stuff that they did in reverse to kind of get motion that you otherwise wouldn't get, or you know just because all of the like veiny pieces that kind of come out and wrap around stuff, and 
Um, it's, it's a really, I mean, on that front, it's a really great achievement. I think it's a terrifying monster. Uh, yeah. and it, it, it does a really good job of, uh, keeping the stakes high because you know, it is terrifying. Well, and that, that kind of moves back into Mike D'Angelo's point about the suspense. I, I think because the monster is terrifying because the monster is also unknown that builds the, the suspense. Like you, you can't have one without the other really. I mean, I guess if you didn't, if you didn't see the monster at all and you didn't, you know, it was just like people are, are dying left and right. You still have a suspense film. Sure. Um, but I don't think it's quite as impactful as this. No. And I do think the film works best when it is uh, a really great twilight zone episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but the horror aspect is really important as well. Yeah, it's I mean, yeah, they they go they go hand in hand. They like and and this is also like this is why it sort of feels like quintessential like 80s Carpenter to me is it's just it's a snapshot of what he was doing at the time, what other people in the genre were doing at the time. But he's doing at the same time, he's doing something a little different because, you know, you think about. Um, other horror films of, of the eighties, you've got, you know, your Freddy's and your, your Jason Voorhees and the more like slasher, uh, films. And this is like, I, I, when, when we decided we were going to do this, I actually had second thoughts. I was like, well, is this the best Halloween movie? Because it's not exactly, you know, that, um, but I, I think it's still, I think it still fits. And I think, you know, the fact that Carpenter, he's not doing a slasher film. He's not doing even like, I mean, even you can pair, those movies to his Halloween and Halloween is much more about the tension and the suspense, which is something that carries over here. I would say this is almost more of a really good snow day movie. Um, <laughs> or if you're in Louisiana, a hurricane day movie, if uh-huh. you have power snow, day, snow day might be, might, might actually make it creepier though. Right. Because you're, you're trapped in a space with some people and you trust them. And, uh-huh. uh, this is really about deconstructing that. Mm-hmm. It's like if secret Hitler were a movie, it's such a simple, simple premise. And the thing that I, I think works so well is the way he doesn't because you're and granted, there's there's a large cast and you could if you wanted to get into criticism, you could say like a lot of these figures aren't necessarily fleshed out. I think I think Kale and Ebert both get into that a bit in their reviews, um, but it's you're really I mean, you're really in McCready's shoes. You're really sort of following him along the whole way. And we don't, we don't spend much time getting to necessarily know the other characters. So that doesn't really bother me, but um, the way it's, it's a constantly like you're in McCready's shoes and you're constantly second guessing. You're constantly saying, okay, what, what just happened? What does that mean? Trying to analyze it. And it's constantly sort of flipping on itself. And it's just inherently, it's inherently good, uh, good suspense, good uh, tension. Um, And I, I really appreciate that. I, I agree. I think it's I think it's really good. Um, when I first finished the movie, I probably thought it was about a 6.5, maybe a 7 out of 10. And I I had to think about it. And I was I thought, oh, man, there's not all the answers aren't there. And it just they're sitting there at the end and you don't know what's happening. And I thought about it nonstop since I've seen it. And mm-hmm. I really, really like this movie. This is exactly the kind of movie I like to watch. That's that. That's great. I I really like. I I'm happy about that. I I was worried watching it again. I was like hypercritical of like thinking like, okay, how is Jake going to receive this? And you know, it's not a. I think you're right. It's you know, it's it's not a ten out of ten, but it's a perfectly like 
pleasurable movie. It's a, um, for, you know, what it is, it's like, it's like the best chicken fried steak you've ever had. Um, it's, it's craveable. It's not something that you're going to want every day. It's certainly not the, not going to be the bedrock of, you know, your, your dietary decisions or shouldn't be. Um, but every once in a while, it's just the best thing you can think of. I'm from Louisiana, so I'm just not familiar with this concept of chicken fried steak. My time in Oklahoma is the only reason I've been exposed to it. (laughs) Yeah. And you were probably exposed to some pretty bad chicken fried steak in uh, like cafeterias. And, uh, so it's, um, it's the best. I don't, I don't know what, uh, what, what was the, uh, the boudin? Is that what it's called? Boudin? Boudin. Boudin. (laughs) Maybe it's that is. is, is, No, boudin is great. Boudin is amazing. But can you eat it every day? Um, we try down here. It, it's, it's really the, that bottom layer of the food pyramid. So, so I have a question, Chris, have you seen the, I think it's from 2011, the, the prequel to the thing? I, I have not. And I I really don't care to, I don't like, I, I hate the idea of, oh, here's a premise and now let's expand upon it beyond the, what, what was laid out. Because my understanding is that it's basically focused on the Norwegian uh, base and it's sort of one of those hybrid sequel prequel things where it informs some stuff and creates answers that you don't need and also is sort of going through the same steps as the original yes um, that that's what i heard i haven't seen it but i went to my friend's house and i was like oh we're, we're reviewing the thing this week he said oh my god that's like my favorite movie so he went to the back and he's like here take this i got the thing uh oh no and so I have it sitting on my counter and I am going to end up watching it and okay. uh, maybe, maybe I'll cover it in a little uh, um, segment at the end of one of our episodes coming up. Yeah, you'll have to let me know if it's worth checking out because I just I, movies like that. They never they never entice me unless I hear something that's like, oh, you know what? That that unnecessary sequel was actually actually pretty darn good. I generally don't seek them out. Unless it's a Mad Max movie. So as, as a as a testament to how good the effects were in this, uh, my friend said, uh, yeah, but it is the, the effects are CG in this movie. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. not as good. So people really do enjoy those old effects. That's a thing that they like. Yeah. And I think I mean, the thing for me is even if I can tell that it's fake, that's not necessarily a problem for me. Like it's there. It's an aesthetic and I just generally find that the aesthetic of visibly obvious CG and there's there's plenty of really good CG that you don't even know is is fake mm-hmm. um, that that passes by. But I feel like the the threshold for what we're willing to spend our disbelief with in knowing that it's fake goes much farther, at least for me, with practical effects. It's um, it's just it's a thing in the room that you can touch and you know that they can see it and it, yeah we're just not quite there yet we make realistic stuff but it's especially i find when we get to like fantasy monsters and stuff like that that Mm -hmm. cg effects really just they don't feel as believable they do a better job when they're emulating like real things because they have lots of points of reference to go from and it's not as this came out of some guy's imagination which i i know the practical effects did too but you can touch them they're there yeah well and compared to i mean i i think a very easy and simple and apples to apples comparison is compare the Lord of the Rings trilogy to the Hobbit trilogy and where the Lord of the Rings, not everything is practical, but a lot of stuff is practical. You know, the, the Urukai are all 
humans in, or at least in close up or humans in costumes, that sort of thing. And in the, what one and a quarter Hobbit movies that I saw, because <laughs> I, I just gave up and said, I, I can't dedicate my life to another six hours of this. Um, it's basically every antagonist was, you know, the goblins are all CG goblins. You know, I'm sure it's, it's mocap, but it just looks kind of like Play-Doh. It, to me, I played enough video games growing up to know that it looks like video games. Uh-huh. And, that, that, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, so he, here's my question that I had for you, Chris. Uh, Blade Runner and The Thing came out in the same weekend, mm-hmm. and they both were kind of panned critically. Correct. And I don't, I don't think either one did very well at the box office either. Mm-hmm. So, and they both are cult classics now. Can that happen these days? Is it, is it possible that, uh, in, in 20 years, we're going to look back and say, Max Steel and Don't Breathe came back the same weekend, <laughs> uh, came out the same weekend. Can you believe that? Like, is it harder to get a cult classic now that we are so connected and so aware of everything? And with niche marketing, it seems like things can find its audience in first run better. Do you agree with that? Um, I don't necessarily think so. I think actually right now we're in a similar sort of landscape as 1982. You know, uh, several years ago, I, I think I comment on this once every four episodes, but several years ago, um, Alamo draft house did, I guess in 2012 did a retrospective on the summer of 1982 as like the best summer ever. You know, there was Rocky three, the thing, um, there was ET, there were, there was, uh, obviously Blade Runner, um, a bunch of movies that, that came out and they, you know, they, they showed them all in, in a great little series. And it's, you know, it was just a saturated summer. And I, I think we are, you know, in, in an era of peak TV and an era of everything driven by content and everyone wants more content and everyone's putting out content. Um, we, we do have that, that sort of place where things, sort of get overlooked in the theater a lot, or they just don't get, you know, now with stuff that comes out and it doesn't even hit a theater. It just goes straight to rental on, uh, you know, iTunes, Amazon, whatnot, and then eventually makes its way to like Netflix or whatever. I I think there are still things like, I think don't breathe. It'll, have you seen this? Have you seen, I, I haven't seen don't breathe. I think, I think don't breathe and Max steel is maybe a bad comparison because one of those, I haven't <laughs> seen Max steel, but I think, uh, well, they didn't come out the same week either, but e- either way, like, uh, I, I think don't breathe. It'll be interesting to see if it gains, uh, if it gains a cult following, I think it definitely could. I think it's, I think don't breathe is actually a pretty darn good movie. It's, uh, uh, actually reminds me of the mechanics of this movie a lot in that it's basically one setting and it's all like, you never know exactly what's going to happen next. Um, uh, and I, I like that about it. Um, and you know, you look at things like, like some of my favorite movies of the year, like the witch, the witch is now up on, I believe Amazon prime. And I'm, uh, talking to people constantly who are like, Oh, Hey, I found this movie on Amazon. It's called the witch. Um, I thought it was going to be scary and it wasn't, but I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I think it follows might have the, ooh. the, the, the muster to, to be a cult classic one. day. I, I think it follows got, but it was like, it was pretty, it was a darling when it came out though. Like a lot of critics True. liked it. There were, there were some who didn't, but, um, I, I wasn't too keen on it follows like it, really? it has, it has some things that it did well. And then it sort of like does some of the really stupid horror things. It definitely uh, did towards the end. And that, and that, that just kind of bothered me because it felt like it knew how to set up the world. But then once it did, it was like, well, I don't know how to get out of it. Guess we're going to do this weird pool thing that makes <sighs> no yeah. sense. I, I, I think that maybe it, 
it just might be that different things will end up being cult classics now than older movies. Older movies, it seemed like uh, horror had a good chance of becoming a cult classic. Well, or- and I, I think that's because horror as a genre also has such a dedicated fan base of, you know, there are people who like they love movies, but they only love horror movies. You know, it's it's a genre that uh, that works for that. And so I think that's why you do see a lot of horror movies that become cult movies. I have trouble with that. And it's not that I'm it's not that I'm scared of a horror movie. It's like, how many times can I watch a family buy a new house and there be something creepy in the house? Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it seems like I see that trailer three times a year, three, three times a year, three times a season. I, I feel <sighs> it's there's so many of them. OK, I, I have a kind of question to flip back on you referring to the thing and Blade Runner um, thing. And Blade Runner come out the same same day. Both uh, aren't, you know, don't don't do so well. Um Which do you think holds up as a better film? Uh, Okay, so I've only seen um, whatever version of Blade Runner we watched in our, uh, was it uh, film theory and criticism class? Yeah. Which I believe was the original cut. I think that's right. Well, yeah, the original, not the work print that had the voiceover, but the like original theatrical. The original, I think, U.S. theatrical. Because I... there's a lot of them. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the thing holds up. I think I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it's been a number of years since I've seen Blade Runner. See, I, I think I last time I saw Blade Runner was in the spring. Um, Cinemark does like a classic films, you know, they'll every Sunday or Wednesday, they'll uh, show a classic film. I think they do it four times, like every once a season and I saw it on the big screen and it was the first time I'd seen it on a big screen since we saw it in class. And it was, it, it's one of those movies that I I've reached a point where I feel like I no longer find anything new to intrigue me. Um, and it's, it's okay. Like my, my point here being, I think the thing has a better re rewatchability to it. Um, Blade Runner has some great sort of philosophical ideas that it that it posits and and it's really gorgeous and itself has some really great practical effects with miniatures and that sort of thing. But still, um, the two of them side by side, the thing's the one that I'm going to pick to watch every time. And they they have similar themes in them about um, the are you the person that you're seeing? Are they really a person? Are they an Android? Are they the thing Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. impersonating each, you know, uh, humanity and all this other stuff, trying to seek those out. I just really like the thing. Yeah, I do too. I'm, I'm glad, but that's just because I'm not a big Jared Leto fan. I thought his performance as Roy Batty, the whole tears (laughs) in the rain monologue is a little overwrought. So in my head, they're just playing the same notes. Oh, if that was Jared Leto, that would be that tears in the rain monologue would be terrible. But, uh, Luckily, it wasn't. I I enjoy I enjoy that monologue. It's a little it's a little flowery, but I think I think it's one of the few things that works really well. That was intended to be big and audacious. Spoilers are done. Spoilers are done. Turns out Rosebud was only a sled. Kylo Ren's dad is totally dead. Noah Cross was Mulray's baby daddy, and also her regular dad. Spoilers are done. We're finished. Spoilers are done. We're 
So Chris, it's unanimous. You and I both love the thing, whether you've seen it the first time or the 20th time. What beer do you recommend cracking open when you sit down to watch this film? Okay, so my recommendation this time is a bit of an obligation. It is today is Halloween, 31st of October, the last day of October. And I have yet to recommend an Oktoberfest beer. So um, that's what I'm going to do because I feel I, I need to meet that obligation. And this is an Oktoberfest that I really enjoy. It's called Ogletoberfest from Anthem Brewing Company in Oklahoma City. Uh, the name comes from the satirical news site, The Lost Ogle, um, which if you're not from Oklahoma, probably you don't you don't care much about. But if, if you are, they, they've got a lot of great uh, satirical stories about sort of Oklahoma goings-ons. Um, and this is a, it's an Oktoberfest beer. It's, uh, sweet. It's very drinkable. I think it's something that McCready would have no problem throwing back, you know, a six pack or in the case of this beer, it actually comes at a four pack. I think he would, you know, he could throw back a four pack playing computer chess for an evening and really enjoy it. So that's Ogletoberfest from Anthem Brewing Company. Uh, check it out. Uh, does it pair well with the chicken fried steak? <laughs> it would, it would go very well with the chicken fried steak. I think. Yeah. It's, it's not, you know, it's not too overpowering. The sweetness is really nice. Um, I'm going to say yes. Or a turkey leg. Mm, turkey legs. <laughs> the Thing is currently available to buy or rent from all the usual purveyors of moving pictures. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. After dinner, baby, we gotta talk. I've been hearing strange things around the block. And what they're saying's really gripping my style. All right, Jake, it's recommendation time again. It's also Halloween. What do you have to recommend? Hopefully something spooky. Oh, I, I definitely went spooky. Also, I, I went new cult classic. Okay. Uh, my, my question earlier, I also wanted to just see if you would name this movie or not. Um, it came out about five years ago. It was actually produced and then shelved for three years before release and grossed a grand total of $223,000. Uh, so it, it would not be anchoring your best uh best picture cine- cineplex in the yeah. fantasy movie league yeah. i'm talking about tucker and dale versus evil which i believe this is like a berenstein bear type thing but i thought it was tucker and dale fight evil and maybe it was released under that title at some point i've i've always heard it as versus evil um i have not seen this movie but i've heard i've heard nothing but good things about it probably because like the only i've only heard people talk about it a few times but when they do they talk about it in a very glowing nature 
it's it is really good, especially for a movie that got no attention at all. It's directed by Eli Craig, and I checked on uh, IMDb, and he has done nothing else of interest. I don't think he's done another uh, feature film at all. He did a pilot for a Zombieland TV show, hmm. but it's starring Tyler Labine and Alan Tudyk, which you probably know from Dodgeball or Firefly Serenity, and a surprising amount of voice work uh, that he's done. But huh. the the film is about a group of college kids who go out into the woods on spring break and run into two uh, kind of, I think they're West Virginia kind of hill folk mm-hmm. uh, who have a cabin up there. And all the college kids start dying some mysterious deaths. But uh, it has kind of the sensibilities of something along the lines of Shaun of the Dead. Probably not as well executed, but uh, still really, really rewarding as a film. I, I definitely recommend it. And where is this available? So you can stream it on Hulu. Or you can rent it from the standard places or at your local public library, maybe. What about Hollywood Video? Oh, uh, War Starts at Midnight brought to you by Hollywood Video. If you can find a Hollywood Video, <laughs> um, I assume it would be there. Might might be in the bargain bin. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, if, if it was for sale at a going out of business Hollywood Video, it is gone. And not just because all Hollywood Videos are gone. <laughs> what about you, Chris? What do you recommend? Okay, so I've got a recommendation that is... Uh, I think both fits in with uh, Halloween a little bit. Maybe it's a bit of a stretch, um, but it, it also has some direct connections to our review and an upcoming event. It is John Carpenter's 1988. Uh, I don't even, it's not quite a horror film. It's more, it's more satire uh, called They Live. And this stars Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David, who is also in The Thing as Childs. Um, and the basic premise of this is, Everything is uh, not as it seems. Rowdy Roddy Piper plays this this guy who uh, inherits these glasses that allow him to actually see that all over the place. We've essentially our society has been taken over by these like evil zombie creatures who are feeding us lies. And it's you know, it's a satire about uh, about the media, about consumerism, about things like that. So um, has, you know, as as far as thematically has some uh, things along the lines of, you know, like what George Romero was doing with Dawn of the Dead with, you know, commenting on consumerism and uh, and, you know, zombies in a mall, that sort of thing. Or perhaps maybe your your beloved chopping mall. Um, oh, chopping mall. <laughs> which where, was, where, where shopping co- cost you an arm and a leg. Right. Um, also, there's was, no chopping in chopping mall, just for the record. <laughs> just, just robots. Just laser-based deaths. <laughs> Um, but there's, so I mentioned an event. So coming up November 4th and 5th, and I believe this is sort of a cheeky in connection to the election and, uh, maybe one person who's running for office and, uh, their, uh, followers who seem to just be, you know, perhaps, uh, zombies just following in anything this, uh, particular. Seriously, get it together, Jill Stein followers. <laughs> um, Tulsa's local Circle Cinema is doing a screening of this November 4th, November 5th. Um, check out their website, circlecinema.com for, uh, for showtimes. I'm sure it's going to be great. I'm going to try to make it out. I've only seen this on DVD. Um, I really want to see it up on a big screen. I think it'll be a whole lot of fun. And it's, uh, for those of you still like totally have no idea what I'm talking about. The one thing that you might know about this movie, I think, uh, the thing that's like its most known popular culture piece at this point, um, is probably the, uh, the cripple fight in South Park is, more or less a shot for shot remake of a really long fight between Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David. 
in in this movie and uh the original fight is fantastic chris i don't think if you if, if our listeners are anything like me i think you had them at rowdy roddy piper I hope so. I, I really I, hope so. I, th- I think that's that. Also, uh, once you've watched The Thing and They Live, have you passed the prerequisites to go and watch The World's End by Edgar Wright? <laughs> what? Uh, th- those are both influences on that film. Have you seen The World's End? I've seen The World's End. I love The World's End. Yeah, it's like an invasion of the body snatchers type thing, but They Live is all- yeah. often cited as part of that. Uh-huh. But also, also, there's some body snatching themes in The Thing. So That's... Um, that's really, I, you know, I, I hadn't really made that because I always, when I think, when I think about the world's end, I actually focus more on the, what he's doing with the dynamic between the friends. Like the, the whole genre thing feels like just great added dressing. Um, I, I honestly sort of forget about that whole, um, that whole plot, like the, the MacGuffin of it, if you will. I mean, Edgar Wright's uh, classic thing, uh, for that series is taking a genre film and then making a really good movie within it. Yeah, yes, it has yeah. references. Yes, it's funny. But there's a really good movie at the heart of all of those. Yeah. And honestly, those are, I mean, I, I think The World's End or Shaun of the Dead would also be great uh, Halloween picks as well. The only reason I didn't go with those is I assume our listeners have seen both of them. But but if you if you haven't seen The World's End and you liked The Thing and you watched They Live, definitely watch The World's End. Yeah, I actually want to. If you haven't seen The World's End, check it out. If you have seen The World's End, um, I would like to challenge you, Midnight Warriors, to find a better opening sequence for a film. And I'm, and I'm talking about that. It's the first five minutes or so where you're getting uh, Gary King's sort of backstory, his history. Um, and then it all kind of flips itself on its ear in, in a great little reveal um, as to, like, why he's narrating this all. Um, that is such a perfect kind of jump in directly into the world of a movie and a setup. I challenge you to find something better from the cinema, from the cinematography to the editing, to the voiceover, to, to everything in that montage. It might be, it might be one of the best montages of the past 25 years. Yeah. Not a wasted frame, nothing out of place. All the information is as concise as it can possibly be and perfectly digestible. It's perfect. And, and the, and like you said, the reveal is, is just fantastic to flip the whole thing and your view of it and him. And it's, it's great. Yeah, totally agree. It's hard for the rest of the movie to live up to it, but in my opinion, it does. <laughs> well, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, weekly recaps of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League, and more. Or say hi to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you like the show, rate and subscribe to it in iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight spoiler alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash thetailormachine. And shout out to Sports for the music on this week's show. Find music and tour dates at sportsbandok.com. Join us later this week for a very special War Crimes review of The Godfather Part 2 with guest Kevin Kissling. Thanks for listening, folks. I just can't believe this voodoo bullshit. Yeah, f*** you too. Yeah, 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 yeah
Kirk Douglas is the only name that comes to mind. <laughs> Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, Kirk Douglas. <laughs> I would watch Kurt, Kirk Douglas in the thing. <laughs> he could have been in the original. <laughs> <laughs> I am the thing. I am the thing. <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds like one of those uh, one of those sketches that Bill Hader would try to pitch that Lauren would just be like, but why? <laughs> Kirk Douglas was in the thing. <laughs>